Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Steo. Steo makes functional mountain lifestyle apparel for both the epic and everyday moments in life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today I'm talking with Charlie Kelly, who's a man who can claim many firsts in the sport of mountain biking. He was the first to promote a mountain bike race, he co-founded the first company that sold complete mountain bikes and even started the first mountain bike magazine, Fat Tire Flyer. He's known as one of the founding fathers of mountain biking, and he's a member of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. Thanks so much for joining me, Charlie. Well, thanks for the call. The first thing I want to ask you is just, when you were starting out, did you ever imagine mountain biking would become such a phenomenon? Well, it would be pretty hard to imagine that from, you know, depending on what stage you're talking about, but at the stage when there were maybe seven or eight people with uh, modified bikes that you practically had to make out of flint. <laughs> no, it would be uh, pretty pretty hard to project that. I remember uh, one conversation, one of my friends got pretty excited and said, ah, this will be in the Olympics someday. And I was <laughs> kind of uh, dismissive. I said, that's about as likely as an American winning the Tour de France. You know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, you can tell what era that was from. Right. <laughs> Right. So, but you guys were pretty passionate about it. I mean, did you, was it the kind of thing where you did it and then it was, it was so much fun? I mean, could you imagine other people enjoying it to the degree that you did? Well, it, it, it was so hard to get into uh, at first uh, because you had to modify this bicycle in a very specific way. You had, first you had to find one of these old things. Right. And then you had to do the modifications that uh, really most of them took place at the house that I shared with Gary Fisher and, and Alan Bonds, but uh, it was really hard to get into. You had to be passionate just to get there. Right. And uh, so, I mean, uh, if you had the equipment, it was because you already had the passion. Right. So, uh, uh, but really, it, it was a goofy hobby shared by a dozen <laughs> or, or more people. That not not that many people really. Right. Well, what was attracted to you about mountain biking in those really early days? Like what made it different or more exciting than, you know, BMX or road biking or even cyclocross? Downhill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there is no comparison. You know, I've been riding road bikes for a long time, but there is no comparison between uh, downhill on dirt and downhill on a, uh, on a nicely paved road. And we found that out. Actually, the first... The first experience that I had, other than being a kid, was the day that Gary Fisher and I and another guy just took our town bikes, just one-speed town bikes, out on a trail, and uh, we pushed them and walked them and whatever uh, for a ways and then turned them around. And it turned out that even on $15 worth of junk, (laughs) coasting downhill on a dirt road is pretty much fun and it's actually quite a bit more fun than chasing the guy who's on your bike <laughs> laughing while you uh, are running behind him because uh, we only had two bikes and three guys but uh, anyway uh, even on junk 
downhill on dirt is fun. Yes. And the bikes are no longer junk. <laughs> right, right. Bikes have definitely changed a lot. What was the demographic like back then with your, you know, sort of that first core group of riders? Were you all sort of similar ages and uh, backgrounds? Mostly, although there was uh, one member of our squad that was, uh, he was actually turned 50 years old. I didn't realize this, turned 50 years old the day of the first repack downhill. Wow. And uh, he was a retired firefighter. They get to retire fairly young, but everybody else was between the ages of maybe 25 and 30, a uh, little bit older than children. Right. But <laughs> maybe not full grown yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, for people who don't know, you all were getting started in Marin, you know, which is part of the San Francisco Bay Area. And today, you know, the Bay Area is known for generating a lot of innovation. You know, there's these huge global successful tech companies like Apple and Google there. So, I mean, would you say, is there something unique about the Bay Area that maybe helped mountain biking catch on with like a broader audience? Like, did, do you see yourselves as sort of pioneers or like tech pioneers in any way? To some extent, we were just the right people standing in the right place at the right time because we were not by any stretch the first people to take an old bike out there and coast down a dirt road. <laughs> right. I mean, that you know, I'm pretty sure that that had been happening for quite a while. The difference between us and I guess every other group that might have done that is that we were also mostly road racers. And so I had this 50 plus pound converted Schwinn bike. And I also had an Italian hand-built racing bike. And if you set the old Schwinn next to the racing bike, you, you could say, actually, I see some room for improvement here. <laughs> and right. uh, <laughs> But the room for improvement had to start with someone who could build a frame. And maybe the difference is that because we are road-oriented, or not completely, but at least partially road-oriented people, we understood the modern concept of frame building. Mm -hmm. And I felt that if someone would build a frame for this purpose, it would be a lot better bike than what I was riding. And another factor that maybe is not as well known is that those bikes did not last very long under me <laughs> and or most of my friends because they're built for kids to deliver newspapers on. Right. And uh, they're not built for some 200-pound fool to be uh, – <laughs> Descending, you know, uh, 1,300 feet, which was the difference in elevation on Repack right. in a little under five minutes. And I'm sure there's a formula that will tell you how much heat is generated, but it was considerable. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that I rode that bike everywhere for my, my town bike, and eventually I would just fatigue the frame huh. because it was just not built, built for a guy who raced bicycles. Right. You know? Yeah. So would you, I mean, was that unique at the time to have, um, I mean, you mentioned Joe Breeze and I guess Tom Ritchie was building frames around that time too. Was, was that going on in other cities? Were there people building bikes uh, sort of from scratch? Well, there were other people converting old bikes in a similar fashion to what we were doing because we actually picked it up from some other guys that we saw, but the as far as building a frame for that specific purpose, as far as I know, Joe Breeze was the first person to do it. And I leaned on him for most of a year before I talked him into doing it. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because now Joe Breeze, of course, is an internationally renowned bicycle designer. <laughs> right. And I spent a year talking him into 
designing the first bicycle that they designed. And, you know, I wouldn't suggest uh, in a podcast that Joe Breeze owes an entire career to me. <laughs> Maybe just part of it. Because that would be unfair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's interesting to me, too, because today when when I think of custom bike frames, I mean, that that's kind of like a really elite thing or that's something that you do if, you know, you have a lot of extra money or whatever. Was that a big deal back then? Like, I mean, it seems like you were pretty dedicated if you were willing to go to the lengths of having a custom bike designed and commissioned. Well, that's true, because really you could go into a bike store and if you had the kind of money that it took, you could leave with a pretty nice Italian or French, whatever, race bike, mm-hmm. and you could buy it off the shelf. Now, if you are going to have one built by a custom frame builder, and uh, this is really actually kind of key to the whole origin uh, story, if you're going to go to a custom frame builder, then you're going to go with uh, eight pages of specs because you can buy a pretty nice bike off the shelf, right? So right. what what is it going to cost? Why would you spend three times the money on that bike frame if you're not going to ask for something actually totally unique. Right. Okay. Now, Tom Ritchie had been building bike frames for seven or eight years. He started when he was 14, 22 when I met him, actually, and had built over a thousand bikes. And when Gary Fisher brought, well, actually, he saw Joe's bike. He came and raced on Repack and had seen Joe's bikes. And Gary had asked, Gary Fisher had asked him uh, to build a bike similar to Joe's. And Tom Ritchie realized almost immediately that first, when he for building these new kinds of bikes that weren't called mountain bikes yet, first, you don't need to buy that $150 double-butted tube set. <laughs> you can use straight-gauge tubing, and it costs you 20 bucks right. for, the, for that tubing it takes to make a, a mountain bike, as long as you're using straight-gauge, comes right from the foundry, and just pick the sizes you want, Okay. First, okay, so the tube set's quite a bit cheaper. Second, he realized that nobody's going to come to him with eight pages of specs on this bike because he can do two sizes or whatever, small variations, mm-hmm. and build an essentially you know, mass-produce them uh, as much as you can do in a garage. But what that meant was that he could spend a morning cutting 50 tube sets because they'd all be identical, and then start welding in the afternoon. And essentially, he could make five or six of these new kind of bikes mm-hmm. in the same time it took to build a custom road bike, and it would cost him maybe a fifth as much for the tubing. Huh. And so uh, the Tom Ritchie, uh, profit motive did not escape Tom Ritchie, <laughs> and uh, he thought, well, I'll just build a few more of these. And then he found out, of course, that, that the only people that were tapped into that market were all in Marin County, and he up with Gary Fisher and then uh, uh, by just by coincidence me because Gary and I were pretty well connected at the time mm-hmm. and uh, the three of us changed the world while changing each other quite a bit also <laughs> it, it was actually a partnership that was doomed from day one but it was really what it took to get this thing off the ground and um, I'm still not sure about you know, whether we made it happen or whether it happened uh, around us, you know. Uh, right. All I know is that we sure got to a pretty good seat to the greatest bicycle adventure of the 20th century. Right. Absolutely. So, right. In 1979, I believe, uh, was when the three of you formed Mountain Bikes, which was the name of the company. And 
you all were delivering complete bikes, the first to do that. Is that right? Correct. And uh, um, because uh, Tom would build the frames, and actually Tom could build a whole bike, but I could build a wheel. Tom can build a wheel, but I can't build the frame. So, Tom, you build the frames, I'll build the wheel. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was, like I say, it was a unique partnership because all three elements were required but the uh, doom of the partnership was sealed on day one because uh, it, it, the business, there was no business plan. It's like, hey, let's sell these bikes. <laughs> right. Um, because you didn't see, you know, we we're thinking, hey, 10 or 15 of these a year. It's kind of a glorified hobby, you know, uh, not, not so much a business as a hobby that we might make a little money from. Right. But the demand, uh, as we now know, uh, you know, we were wrong about a lot of things, but uh, we didn't see the demand coming. And uh, also, we didn't see that Tom Ritchie would just crank out dozens and dozens of these frames because they were so much easier to build for him, you know. And uh, right. And so, Tom, uh, everybody, everybody brought tremendous enthusiasm and not much of a plan. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, it reminds me so much, too, of the the Apple computer story. I mean, same kind of thing where people were interested in computers and, you know, there were these partnerships formed and, um, yeah, just so many parallels. I find that really interesting. So back then too, people were calling bikes off-road bikes. I guess that was the more generic term. Um, but today, obviously we call, we call the sport, we call, it's all based on, it's called mountain biking. So why, why do you think that term stuck on? I mean, that was what you chose for your company. Did people start using that term because your bikes were just so ubiquitous or, uh, was it, you know, the quality is like mountain bike was the best off-road bike you could get. Like, what do you think, um, made that the more popular term? Well, it, it uh, it's an interesting story because Gary and I, we formed the company and we thought, well, what are we going to call ourselves? We call ourselves mountain bikes. And we paid a, a trademark attorney to file for the trademark on that, uh, on that name. Hmm. And, uh, this is what I learned about trademark law. And, uh, there were only two trademark attorneys in Marin County at the time. And I picked the one that was the shortest bike ride <laughs> because, Hey, and I don't know if I picked the right one because he, uh, he failed to secure the trademark on our company name. And the reason is that you cannot trademark a description. Hey, who knew this? Trademark huh. trademark attorneys are supposed to know that. Right. But anyway, uh, and so, for example, you can't trademark red car, right? And so uh, uh, he gets a, a note back from the Commerce Department that uh, administers these things. And it said, well, are these bikes made to be ridden specifically in the mountains? Well, this is what you paid the guy to know. And the, the proper answer was, no, it's a bicycle, ride it in a parking lot, you know, wherever. You know? Uh, but he said, yes, of course, they're built for mountain use, and that made it a description, and our trademark was denied. Now, we knew that, but the rest of the bicycle industry did not know that, and it's not like we were sending out press releases that we don't own the name Mountain Bikes. Um and uh, so Bicycling Magazine actually ran a contest to decide what to call these machines that you can't call mountain bikes because that's a brand name. Um, and the winner was the Clumsy Handle All-Terrain Bicycle. Well, when's the last time you heard anyone use that term? Right. Anyway, uh, it's been a while. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, at some point um, about 
maybe a year and a half after we were denied that trademark, somebody actually did the research and found out, and uh, we were busted, and uh, it went it went generic. Uh, we, you know, our our company name was one word with a capital B on the bikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is now you know lowercase two words. Right. And it's it's not just a noun anymore. I mean, it's it's a verb too. You go mountain biking. Yeah, uh, you know, it uh, it's it's like uh, a lot of words can be <laughs> the noun, the <laughs> verb, or the adjective. And well, it's uh, not the most important one of those. But anyway, uh, yeah, mountain bike. Uh, who gets to put words in the dictionary? And we did. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> a small satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be it's got to be exciting. Yeah. So. We were talking about the bikes too, and you're talking about some of the tubing choices that were made early on. But I was reading there was there was an early review of the of your mountain bike in BMX Plus magazine, and in the article there's this picture of Tom Ritchie holding the bike above his head to show how light the bike is. Actually, that's that Gary Fisher. He's wearing a bombers. That's in uh, the, the jersey he's wearing says bombers on it. Uh, uh, it's actually a, a roller derby jersey. Uh, from the Bay Bombers. But uh, yeah, that's Gary Fisher holding the bike over his head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, I started mountain biking probably in the late or early 90s. And I I always wondered why, as mountain bikers, we did that. You know, people, you'd be out for a ride and someone would hold the bike up over their head and take a picture. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's because mountain bikes were surprisingly lightweight for being so durable, right? What what were the bikes? What did they weigh back then? Do you have any recollection? Yeah, actually, uh, when uh, when Joe Breeze first delivered his, uh, his well, my bike Breezer Number Two, uh, that bike was monstrously heavy, uh, lighter than the Schwinn, but still monstrously heavy, probably in the neighborhood of thirty five or thirty six pounds. Okay. And part of the reason was that uh, the rims and tires had not yet uh, come on the market that uh, really were uh, the quality that we needed because we mm-hmm. had to use uh, steel rims and these uh, Uniroyal knobby tires that were designed in the 30s and hadn't been changed since wow. and cost three bucks. You know, I mean, that was actually one of the jokes is, man, we're selling a $1,300, $1,300 bike with $3 tires. But, then, but uh, anyway, when the alloy rims and lighter tires came out in 1979, that knocked, knocked six pounds right off the bike right there. Oh, wow. And, uh, and when you take that off your wheels, it's like, you know, uh, running with weights on your feet forever and then, mm-hmm. wow, uh, then going barefoot or something. But uh, it's like that was a huge breakthrough. And so, okay, our bikes were then weighing in the, on the order of about 28 pounds uh, for the Ritchie bike, which mm-hmm. was a much lighter frame than the uh, Breezer bike. And uh, now, of course you got full suspension mountain bikes that weigh what my Italian race bike did in the seventies, you know, around 21 pounds. Yeah. But you look at the enduro bikes today, you know, I mean, these are full suspension and they have dropper posts and all kinds of other doodads on them. But, you know, if you can get one under 30 pounds today, you're doing pretty well, you know, 28 pounds. That's a, that's a pretty high end bike. So it's interesting to me that they were not too far off, you know, at least in terms of the, the more aggressive bikes. Uh, one observation that uh, let me make about uh, the bikes that I'm riding now and uh, a couple of observations. First, we started riding those uh, old Schwinn's because 
they were relatively bulletproof, especially next to your Italian bike, you know, and um, uh, and then uh, we went to the multiple geared conversion. Turned out that those were, uh, man, you had to keep a lot of repair stuff with you uh, <laughs> when you went out on the trail. Right. And then, uh, then you got to the, uh, you know, the Breezer and the Ritchie uh, first-generation mountain bikes, and those were very, very bulletproof, you know, I mean, really tough bikes. But everything you ask for in terms of performance, you're giving up something in terms of maintenance. And so now I'm riding this incredible machine that, if I had to pay for it, would cost five or $6,000, and uh, I, a little perk of being who I am, but uh, anyway... Uh, uh, but that bike is not going to last as long as my now 30-some-odd-year-old Richie, you know, because uh, there's just hydraulic systems. There's so many moving parts. Right. And here's a, a, another minor observation. In the 80s, most of the mass-produced mountain bikes were, uh, at least at first, cloned off the Richie design. And, mm-hmm. and so you got your stump jumpers and your rock hoppers and your diamondbacks and, uh, and uh, a number of other uh, mass-produced bikes. And say a uh, diamondback, 1985 diamondback. I still see those bikes riding around with the original owner because that design was so robust and straightforward and practical that it doesn't have to be an expensive version to be useful for 30-plus years. Oil that chain and that bike runs forever. And now the bike that I'm riding, well, it so much hydraulic stuff on it, you know, that it'll be leaking and whatever, that I don't think you're going to get the kind of durability out of that much more expensive bike. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Steel is a brand mountain bikers may not be familiar with yet, but the company's mission of designing technical, functional products infused with mountain soul is one I think all of us can appreciate. I tested the Steo OPR shorts this spring and found they vented really well. Yet, looking at the shorts, you probably wouldn't even notice the vents designed to open when pedaling or the strategic laser cutouts. And that's the point. Their products are designed for epic and everyday moments. Head over to steocom slash singletracks to check out their entire pedal collection. That's stio.com backslash singletracks. Take advantage of deals up to 70% off through their summer solstice sale, valid through June 25th. So do you still have some of those bikes in your shed? Yeah, my, my oldest bike. Actually, I went through uh, four or five Ritchie uh, mountain bikes uh, when I was in the business of selling them because because I could. But uh, my, well, my two oldest bikes right now are Breezer number no. 2, which is a pretty famous bike, and that is in the uh, Mountain Bike Hall of Fame display. Uh-huh. And, and I have 1983 uh, Richie Annapurna. I had, uh, after uh, Gary bought my interest in uh, mountain bikes, I asked Tom to do me a custom uh, custom frame, and I still have that. And that one uh, that one went a lot of places with me for quite a few years, but it's now in the retired collection uh out in the backyard <laughs> well, what's what's the oldest bike that you you're still riding do you, do you throw a leg over any of those early bikes anymore yeah my oldest bike that i'm still riding is about three years old <laughs> <laughs> nice well i mean that's that's how we all are i think as mountain bikers we're addicted to the latest and greatest so that's really cool that that yeah to hear that you're the same way i want to get back to talking about repack the race uh series and those early races 
what was what was the competition like? Was this a really competitive group? I mean, were you were you all looking for this competitive outlet, or what what was the focus in those days? Well, uh, when we would go on these rides, because of the terrain where we live, the towns are at the bottoms of the hills, and the there's hills on all sides, and so every ride started out with going up, and doesn't matter what you're going up, eventually you'll be out, you'll run out of up, and you're on top of something, and uh, no one just like turns around and rides down. You throw the bikes down, you throw the frisbee around, you you know, uh, break <laughs> right. out refreshments or whatever, but you hang around on top of whatever mm-hmm. for a while. And a phenomenon emerged, which is that somebody would look at his bike uh-huh. and it would be on. And uh, you didn't <laughs> have to say, hey, guys, why don't we risk our lives on junk bikes uh, for no stakes? Because... It was going to happen anyway. And, right. you know, uh, and so, you know, when the rides are five or six people, uh, it's kind of a goof to do these mass start downhills. Mm-hmm. But the rides kept, you know, as the popularity of our goofy hobby uh, expanded, while well, now there might have been 10 of us. And uh, suddenly it's lit pretty hairy dicing down these uh, narrow roads when, right. when the sweet spot of the road is really one rider wide. And uh, and turned out that one of the members of our regular riding group was a 220-pound sociopath, and uh, uh, those are uh, those are competitive advantages. And uh, it was worth your life to try to pass this guy. And so it was kind of a goof, but man, sure would be fun if that guy wasn't there, you know. And so we we but uh, now. As you pushed your bike up to the top of these hills, and it would quite often you push them for half an hour, we talked the subject to death, and we decided that a time trial would settle once and for all who was the fastest on the downhill because uh, these mass starts, one guy was going to win every one of them just because he was so threatening. And so, uh, so on that October day, uh, what was it, 22nd October, 1976, 21st, whatever. Joe Breeze knows. I went out there with uh, five or six of my friends and some clocks, and uh, and we held that that race that was to decide everything. Well, it turns out there's a reason that they play the other 161 baseball games after opening day. And <laughs> the reason is that if you play baseball, you like to. Right. And it turned out that a couple of things about that first race. One is that losing the race was almost as much fun as winning it because you got – what you were looking for, which was nobody in front of you, okay? And second, it turns out that everybody wants a shot at the title. <laughs> and so, okay, Alan Bonds, my roommate at the time, won that first event. And, uh, you know, he's hoist- hoisting the metaphorical belt buckle, you know, and uh, <laughs> saying, okay, I'm, I'm the world champion. And everybody says, well, sun got in my eyes. <laughs> and... Are you going to defend that championship or retire undefeated? Because <laughs> we're going back out there, and uh, and so it turns out, uh, and I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but uh, turns out that if you're a champion, you can either defend it or retire, but other people want to compete, and so uh, five days later we were back up on that same hill, and then. Uh, I mean, I have the records uh, after all. After the first race, I have all the records because we didn't even keep the records for the first race because who cared? Who was going to care? 
but I, I have all, all the uh, finished results from all the uh, subsequent races. But um, and within about uh, a week, the guys from the neighboring towns are starting to show up because you know there are other guys riding in other parts of the mountain on similar bikes, and we knew each other. It's just we had no reason to ride with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once there was a race, now there's people starting to show up, and then, then people started showing up from Berkeley across the bay. We didn't, man, we didn't even know where. You know, how did you even find out about us? Yeah, there was but, no internet. Right, uh, that's right. <laughs> but it turned out that this goofy, goofy event brought people together, okay, that had no reason to hang around each other. I mean, we all had similar interests, but we had no reason to, you know, share them because, uh, you know, you guys ride over there, we ride over here, no big deal. But once there was a race, there was a reason for other people to come to our part of the uh, downhill world. And also, the other thing about the race is that you start looking for that edge. And like I say, if you're looking at your Italian bike and this uh, 40-year-old Schwinn, you're thinking, well, actually, I can maybe if I improve the frame or whatever, you know, I'd be faster. And so that really started us thinking about maybe moving into the next uh, phase of uh, building these bikes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds like the competition for in those early days, for sure, was very good natured and, you know, really was about building community more than anything else. Um, but I'm sure it got very competitive and serious. I mean, we see today sort of where we're at. And it seems, too, there's a lot of parallels with enduro racing today where, you know, you kind of take your time getting up and people are hanging out at the top waiting for their turn to drop in. To me, that's that's really cool to see those parallels. We what would what did the times look like? Would would you see those times improving? You know, you said you have those records from all those races. Did you see the times improve? And and if so, how how are people doing that? Yeah, the first uh, the first winner didn't get under five minutes, but uh, it turns out that five minutes was a pretty good standard. If you could get in under five minutes, you were pretty good at it, and. Uh, I actually created categories. You're an expert. Anybody who ever got under five minutes uh, was was forever after that an expert. <laughs> wow! And uh, and uh, because actually I uh, I would hand out prizes, no entry fees, but uh, the bike shops would support the effort. And so just in order to distribute the prizes, I created novice and expert categories. And uh, really, the experts there were only maybe 15 experts uh, because uh, you had to really be passionate to get under five minutes. And it, it's actually hard to describe in current terms how this thing took over our lives. But uh, we, we hiked up and down that road. We studied it. We practiced it. And as time went on, the fastest riders were all riding very consistent times. And you know, the, the top three times are separated by only two seconds. Wow. And so, ironically, there have been people coming out with very fancy downhill bikes trying to shatter the records. They can't shatter the record. And there's a couple of reasons. One is that the high point of the course is actually not at the start. It's about maybe 150 yards from the start, and we just picked the start because here's a spot, a nice place to start the race. Well, there was a big rock there. We figured that rock will never move, so that'll be the starting line, right? And the same thing at the other end. There's a big rock. 
at the finish area, and we figured, well, that will never move, so that's the finish line. And so, uh, uh, but because it actually slopes a little bit upward from the start line, these guys that show up with these really fancy downhill bikes, they can't bolt off the line like like a road racer on, you know, I mean, for and the top three times are held by, held by road racers. Oh, wow. But, uh, uh, well, Gary Fisher, uh, Joe Brees, and Otis Guy were all really good road racers, too. Uh, right. But but the start is key, and you actually have to ride uphill at least, uh, you know, 150 yards or so. Mm-hmm. And the modern bikes don't do that very well. And so uh, uh, that's, that's why uh, really... The old guys uh, with their junk bikes still hold the records. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, yep. Huh. When you say modern bikes, what do you mean? Have people, from what I understand, the course is no longer open to bikes, right? Oh yeah. Oh no, you can ride it. Oh, you can. Do people go out there and uh, contest it today on their modern bikes? They go out there with their uh, what is it? Their little uh, timers on their uh, phones, you know? And, uh-huh. uh, right. Um, and. What is that called? Uh, Strava. Strava. Is there yeah, Strava yeah, segment? Yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. So they Strava that, and uh, um, and uh, yeah, people do it unofficially. The, there's only one day a year when uh, they don't really want you there, and that's uh, the, during the Thanksgiving Day ride when a thousand people show up, and uh, and they prefer you don't ride a thousand people through the creek at the bottom. But uh, uh, but that's the only day, and and uh, nobody minds that too much. Because we get it the rest of the year. In 1980, you and Denise Caramagno started Fat Tire Flyer, which was the first magazine dedicated to the sport of mountain biking. And for six years, that was the only publication covering mountain biking exclusively. So what made you want to start that? Did you have a background or an experience running a magazine or, or <laughs> what, what led you to that? Like so much of the other, like so much of this, it was an accident. We thought uh, briefly that we would have a club for mountain bikers, and uh, and so we had a meeting for this club. And uh, uh, what does a club do? Well, let's see. You got your president, and your secretary, and your treasurer, and and a newsletter. And I had a couple of articles published by them. And uh, so uh, we, my girlfriend and I, said, oh, we'll do the newsletter uh, for the club." And yeah, Fat Tire Flyer. Oh yeah, that's a great name. So okay, <laughs> so uh, so we pu- published this photocopied, funky eight-page little newsletter with not much news in it because really everybody that got it had been at the meeting. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, uh, but made the mistake of putting issue one on it, and the club never club never met again oh wow but because because it said issue one people started saying well uh, when's issue two coming out you know and like uh well, um, okay well i guess uh okay so anyway and the first uh six or seven issues were actually just i would just type them photocopy them and uh you know fold them and staple them and uh, but it was you know there was a demand for something in print and you know the race schedules if there's going to be a race how do you find out about it? All that, and so uh, eventually we went to uh, you know a real commercial graphic artist and a typesetter and uh, learned about that stuff. And uh, a couple of years in, uh, Denise and I parted company, and she sold her interest uh, to uh, another guy, and 
he had uh, inherited some money, which we lost a lot of uh, with the magazine, but uh, <laughs> had a pretty good time doing it. And um, uh, really, it was it was the most creative thing that I've ever really done because along the way, I learned all of that stuff about old school magazine production, and and now, of course, it's all done on a computer. And I was uh, I was right on the uh, the cusp of when it went from physical layout to computerized layout. But uh, it was really fun doing them, you know, the hands-on, uh, you know, uh, with a waxer. I mean, I, I, uh, it, it's, it, it was a fun thing to do. It was uh, very artistic and creative, and, uh, and I lost a lot of money. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what's fascinating to me about, um, I mean, your whole story is, you know, just this, learning how to do things, trying new things. And, uh, really, you know, it's sort of what people call today, like sort of the hacker mentality where, you know, you're, you're building things and you're doing things that maybe people have never tried before. Um, do you see that in mountain biking today? I mean, is that in your opinion, has that sort of carried through? Well, one thing that I've observed, uh, is that, uh, when we came into the market, the bicycle market was, uh, let's see, you got your, your cheap uh, road bikes like uh, Schwinn Varsities or whatever, you had your expensive road bikes, and you had BMX. And that was pretty much the bike market. And uh, mountain biking opened a new niche that certainly the manufacturers didn't see coming, although they obviously jumped all over it. Mm -hmm. But now I see that uh, there are lots of small niches that people are creating and filling. And... Uh, maybe the latest example would be fat bikes, which uh, wouldn't have happened in California because there's no need for them. But in Minnesota or Alaska, there is a need for things like that. And people created a new niche, uh, a new type of bicycle. And uh, then you got your gravel bikes, which uh, is not really a cross bike and not really a road bike. But it's kind of a new thing that uh, fills a niche that nobody had even noticed before. So uh, I think that what we did was maybe show people that imagination uh, is all you need and you can create your own uh, market niche uh, for any kind of cycling equipment. Right. And these days, too, a lot of people like to point out and talk about how um, at the elite levels, you know, racing, downhill racing in particular, um, that's where a lot of the technology is being invented. And, you know, people are constantly tweaking and trying to find new ways to get faster. Was that part of it in the early days too? I mean, were people modifying their bikes pretty regularly so that they could do better in those competitions or was it, was it less serious at that time? Well, one thing about uh, mountain biking uh, as opposed to road racing is a road racing, they define the bike, right? They tell you exactly what you can ride and uh, it's got to measure this and that and so forth. And mountain biking is like run what you brung. If it works, <laughs> if it works, we'll all be riding the next week. And so, right. uh, and so much more than road racing, mountain biking is, is open to innovation. Uh, and in road cycling, uh, the, the UCI uh, has limited the definition of a bike so completely that obviously you can't ride a recumbent in the Tour de France. You know? <laughs> right. uh, but if you could race a recumbent downhill and win on it, no problem. You know? yeah. and, and so it's, it's just a more open atmosphere to what really is a bike. It's anything that you want to ride, really. Yeah. 
So in 1983, speaking of racing, you were instrumental in founding Norba, which was the first sanctioning body for mountain bike racing. Uh, what was the idea behind that? It sounds like like part of the idea was was to make it a little more official and a little more legit. Is that right? Well, there was a couple of problems. First is that uh, the last, well, one of the last repack races that I actually, you know, one of the last ones that I put on was one that uh, KPIX, a local TV station, had come out and filmed. A whole bunch of people came out there to be on TV, and one guy broke his wrist, A guy and a guy I didn't know. And he sued the uh, the TV station because uh, Sue and me wouldn't have done anything uh, for him. So uh, <laughs> uh, And he lost because they had better lawyers. But it was a real message to me that, hey, man, you're, like, actually exposing yourself here, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, man, I'm going to – and at that point, I was – starting to build bikes with Gary and, and my interests were changing. And, uh, I just got out of the race promotion thing because it just felt like I was exposed pretty badly. And, but at the same time, other people were putting on races, cross country races, uh, all over California. There was, uh, Victor Vincenti in, uh, in Southern California. And, uh, uh there's some guys in central coast, uh, clunker classic, uh, Glenn O'Dell, and uh, in Whiskey Town, in Reading, anyway, there were more, there were races taking place. It was real obvious that first it would be nice if we all raced under the same rules first, okay. And second, there was no way we were going to get any kind of insurance to protect these promoters without some sort of an umbrella organization, and that organization would probably have to require helmets. You know, I mean, and maybe the model would be the BMX uh, sanctioning bodies. But it was clear that the, the road racing uh, uh, sanctioning bodies had no interest whatever in what we were doing. So we just formed our own. And the whole purpose was, well, there were only really two purposes. One was so that we could have a, the same set of rules for everybody's race. And second was so we could get some insurance to protect promoters. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rules were remarkably simple, uh, four or five uh, as far as what the bike is and then uh, then a few as far as how the promoter has to deal with marking the course and so forth, you know. But um, uh, just basically the, the very least we could get away with in the way of rules. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, was this was this commercially driven or were at that point, was it still? I mean, it sounds like it was still just you all really loved what you were doing and wanted to spread the spread the gospel. Well, yeah, it was uh, commercially only in the sense that getting insurance was maybe the uh the the prime goal right and the rules were just an outgrowth that well you're not going to get insurance unless you have a rule about helmets and so forth you know so so really the rules were byproduct of wanting the insurance and uh, and insurance was the really the driving factor here right well yeah speaking of helmets um you know i'm fascinated seen the the photos from a lot of those early events and races and things and and you don't see people really wearing helmets there but what also stands out to me is uh, guys just you know in blue jeans and flannel shirts and you know work boots what do you see that um i mean is it interesting to you to see these days that that's still kind of how mountain bikers dress i mean you guys were setting setting sort of the style back then which is is pretty interesting it's like you're wearing what you walked out the door in the morning to wear. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like, uh, and now, of course, I, 
I go mountain biking on a very expensive bike, and I wear a bike jersey, and I wear, you know, cycling shoes and a helmet and all that stuff. Right. But uh, really, uh, it just didn't feel like you wanted to be wearing your Lycra and your jersey, uh, you know, because quite often you would put your knee on the ground, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you'd like it to be covered with something. So Right. <laughs> Yeah, but it seems like in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of that in mountain biking. People were wearing their Lycra and, you know, these really tight fitting jerseys and things. But now it's it seems like we're getting back to the roots, you know, where we want to, as mountain bikers, differentiate ourselves, say, from people who are on the road and and where the performance apparel stuff, maybe at least as mountain bikers, we don't want to look like we're trying too hard. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I I generally... uh uh, wear a pair of cargo shorts over my uh, Lycra shorts, uh, and, uh, and I, I know baggy shorts are big for the mountain bikers now. Because uh, I reason I wear cargo shorts is because they got lots of pockets, and uh, and I keep a lot of stuff in my short pockets, and and uh, uh, so yeah, I I I do wear a bike jersey because they they are practical for a lot of reasons, but uh, but. Uh, uh, generally gone away from the skin tight ones because uh, aerodynamics are not that important to me. Right. So what do you, what are your thoughts on the mountain bike industry today? Are you, um, excited about where mountain biking is going or are there challenges that you see? What, uh, what do you think about your baby in 2018? <laughs> well, uh, at this point, I'm just an old guy talking about, uh, what it was like to be young because, uh, uh, really, it has gone so far away from where we started that uh, I no longer have the ability to work on my own bike because it has so much stuff on it that didn't exist when I was building bikes. Uh, however, fortunately, the local bike shops treat me very, very well. So, uh, But um, uh, really, I, I am just in awe of, the, of where it's gone. Uh, but uh, I, I will point that out uh, once again that a 1986 rock hopper that cost maybe 350 then uh, will probably outlast uh, the much more expensive uh, hydraulically uh, controlled bike that I am riding now. Uh, because uh, yeah, uh, we we we've gotten a, we've gone in the direction of performance and away from uh, you know and. That requires a lot more maintenance. So away from bulletproof and uh, more in the direction of performance. Although, having said that, there are plenty of people making simple, rigid frame, more or less bulletproof bikes these days. And uh, and I think the fat bike people are on to something. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the history of mountain biking and um yeah, all, thank you for all that you've contributed to the sport. Well, I appreciate uh, the fact that I'm an old guy talking about being young once and, uh, <laughs> and that you want to hear it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Well, for more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe to the Single Tracks podcast. If you enjoy what we do, we'd love to have you rate us in your podcast app. And if you're not stoked, drop us an email anytime, info at singletracks.com to help us improve. Talk to you next week. Peace.